Welcome to a special Practice Group's Teleform webinar as today, June 30th, 2022, we host a discussion on Dobbs. I'm Dean Reuter, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the Federalist Society. Please be advised that we're recording today's program. It's being live streamed. It will likely be turned into a podcast and transcribed as well. Uh, be aware of that as you participate in the program today. And I want to let you know that we're going to be taking questions ultimately from our audience after opening remarks uh, that, that we'll be using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. So please use that to enter your questions. And our moderator, Judge Griffith, will ask your questions at the appropriate moment. Um, we're very pleased to welcome three guests to our program. I'm just introducing the moderator, the Honorable uh, Thomas B. Griffith. He's a former circuit judge on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals right here in Washington, DC. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome him back as a uh, persistent moderator, a return moderator on this, this same topic, this same case. Uh, I do want to announce before we begin for the audience uh, a glitch we had. Not only are we beginning this program uh, slightly late, I apologize for that, but a program we hosted earlier in the day has not actually aired, and that is a program on Are We Still One People? Do We Hold These Truths? That's going to be available on our YouTube channel tomorrow, so be on the lookout for that as well. With that, our program today, a discussion on Dobbs. Very pleased once again to, to welcome Judge Thomas Griffith. Take it away, Judge. Thank you, Dean. And uh, I'm grateful to be here today and to uh, introduce our two excellent, excellent panelists. Professor Daniel Farber is the Shosato Professor of Law at uh, Berkeley Law. He's also a member of the uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a life member of the American Law Institute. Uh, he clerked for on the Seventh Circuit and then later clerked on the Supreme Court for uh, Justice John Paul Stevens. He'll be joined by Kerry uh, Severino, the president of the Judicial Crisis Network, a graduate of uh, Harvard Law School. Kerry uh, clerked for David Santel on the DC Circuit and then later for Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. Professor Farber, uh, Ms. Severino, we're honored to have you here. Uh, we're here today to, to talk about uh, a momentous decision, the Dobbs decision. Maybe, maybe it would be best if we could uh, just start off with uh, asking you all to, to summarize uh, the, the Dobbs uh, decision, the key, the key parts of it, just so that for, for those of our audience who haven't yet taken the time to read through the uh, 200 plus uh, uh, pages of opinions, may, maybe that will give them a, a solid foundation on which to uh, participate in the rest of the discussion. So, uh, Professor Farber, can we start with you? Uh, sure. Uh, um, so, obviously, the most important is the majority opinion. Um, the um, statute that was specifically uh, challenged in the case involved um, a 15-week um, sort of deadline uh, for abortion. And so a preliminary question was whether the court should limit itself to reviewing that deadline, the 15-week rule, uh, or whether it should... Um, reconsider the uh, Roe versus Wade entirely. Uh, and the uh, majority opinion uh, uh, says that we have to reconsider Roe versus Wade because both sides agree uh, that um, if Roe remains the law, then this prohibition can't really stand that any attempt to, that the, uh, because this forbids abortions prior to uh, viability, uh, it's simply inconsistent with Roe. 
the um, opinion by Chief Justice Roberts um, takes a position that he seemed to be uh, trying to um, present an oral argument that the court could limit itself to 15 weeks, um, overrule that portion of Roe dealing with viability, but not uh, go all the way to considering whether there's any constitutional protection for abortion at all. But the Alito opinion rejects that. Um, now, of course, we'd already seen the first draft of the opinion. Uh, so it wasn't, there weren't any big surprises, at least that I could see. There was uh, one place where I think there was a little uh, noticeable change of emphasis, but uh, at least um, I didn't spot major shifts uh, between the two drafts. Um, so th there are really two separate issues. One is, was Roe wrong when originally decided? And we knew that there were a majority on, there was a majority on the court who believes that. Um, uh, we know that from prior concurring opinions uh, or dissenting opinions in a variety of cases. Uh, plus, uh, of course, it was no surprise um, uh, to see what um, uh, uh, Justice Barrett uh, thought about that issue as well. So, um, so the result there was not a surprise. Uh, the uh, methodology, I think, um, was probably also not surprising. Uh, the court might have taken the path of simply uh, rejecting the whole idea of um, uh, implied or unwritten constitutional rights. It, it didn't go that route. Uh, instead, uh, it applied what's called the Glucksberg test, which looks at tradition and history to determine whether um, a right is so deeply rooted uh, uh, in, a, in sort of American society that it ought to be recognized. Um, and uh, Justice Alito reviews a lot of early abortion statutes and goes back to the Middle Ages and forward and concludes that uh, uh, that abortion was rejected um, during that whole time period and that it's not firmly rooted. Now, I know some people take strong issue with his use of history uh, there, and I don't feel competent to um, assess that debate, so I'm not going to say anything about it. Um, uh, uh, he decides in any event that abortion is not deeply rooted. I think one of the questions and one that is really um, uh, raised by the dissent is level of generality. Um, you know, should the question be uh, whether abortion is deeply rooted, whether um, control over reproduction is deeply rooted, or whether um, autonomy about intimate family decisions. Is, there are different levels at which you can approach this issue. Um, Glucksberg talks about uh, defining it in a fairly specific way, and that's the way Alito goes here. So he decides, and then he criticizes the um, uh, earlier decisions in Roe uh, and um, 
uh, its um, successors uh, as being weakly um, reasoned. So that's the first more or less half of the opinion, I think. And then the other part is about precedent. And uh, Alito concludes that um, because the case is egregiously wrong, um, because um, and, and primarily because it has not created clear reliance interests that would preclude the court from reconsidering it, uh, that um, this is one of those cases where the court should disregard precedent. Um, so um, there are then two, there are several concurring opinions, but I'll just say something briefly about two of them. Uh, just uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, the court is going much farther than it needs to decide this case. It could simply reject the viability line and uphold the statute on that basis. And that especially in dealing with such a major issue, we should not um, rush in to decide more than we have to. Um, and um, he apparently was not able to get additional support for that. Kavanaugh has what I thought was a rather interesting, oh, he also has a footnote, I think it's a footnote, in which he points back to uh, Rehnquist's dissent in Roe, where Rehnquist suggests that uh, an exception for the life of the mother um, it, uh, uh, may be constitutionally required by due process by due process. So um, I thought that was rather interesting. I wasn't sure if anyone but me remembered uh, that Rehnquist had said that. Um, Kavanaugh um, doesn't find the case as easy uh, on stare decisis in particular as the majority does, uh, but ends up uh, joining on that basis. Uh, he also ad addresses um, and emphasizes, I guess, that uh, he doesn't see this case as necessarily imperiling other uh, cases like Griswold dealing with birth control um, or uh, Lawrence dealing with same-sex conduct. Um, and he, um, in addition, um, um, points out or points to an issue that I think is already beginning to arise about whether states can prevent uh, women from traveling to other states for abortions. And he says, he thinks the answer is clearly no. So, so he's a, a basically on board, I think you could say, but a more cautious voice. Um, and I think that while, um, uh, while they didn't change the outcome in this case or uh, it seems to me that those two concurring opinions might matter in later cases when some of the spin-off issues uh, relating to abortion reach the Supreme Court. I think I've already gone on more than long enough. So no, that's great. great. Carrie. Yeah, yeah, Carrie, is there anything uh, mm -hmm. about uh, Dan's summary uh, thus far that you'd like to add to? And, and then would you also tell us a little bit about Justice Thomas's concurrence and, uh, and the dissent? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Um, I, I think he did, he did a pretty good job summarizing those things. I think it's, um, you know, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. It's interesting trying to figure out what the standard he, what standard he even would have proposed there. It seems like reasonable opportunity, adequate opportunity. And I think one of the real challenges with that, which the majority points out is, 
what is what would that even mean? How if you're a lower court judge, how do you even apply that? It, it seems like it's a it's a brand new standard we don't have from anywhere else in the law that was being applied. So I think that um, it was interesting to try to try to discern that standard from his uh, his uh, opinion, which just seemed to say, well, I wouldn't go all this far, but I it it, it kind of struck me as I hiding the ball kind of thing, like a, like a law professor might do of like, well, it's not this. Okay. Well, what is it? It's a little hard to know. So I think that would, we'll never find out of course, because it, it's not something the courts are going to ha- have to apply, but it was, it was interesting um, to, to just address the, the final two opinions. And obviously we can discuss the whole, um, the whole case then and respond to any questions. Um, Justice Thomas's concurrence is one that has gotten a lot of attention uh, because he pointed out, uh, he, first of all, I think it's important to notice that Justice Thomas mentions in his concurrence, I agree and, and join the Alito opinion in full, including, as he says, the part that says this opinion only addresses and only decides um, what this, what happens with our, our precedents that respect abortion. Um, it doesn't. This doesn't uh, decide. You know what would happen with Griswold and and the idea of a right to contraception or Obergefell and the right to same sex marriage or the numerous other precedents that have been cited both before, uh, you know, during after in the leak period before the case came down and obviously subsequently. So it's important to note that Justice Thomas is actually not saying the case has implications for those. However, he uses his his concurrence to um, make what is, I think, a very Thomistic uh, in, in, in a Clarence Thomas sense type of argument. He often is the, is the one who will write a separate opinion and say, I, I joined the majority, but I'm just going to say that they're resting on a whole line of cases that I think might be have, have real problems and we should go revisit. So he does this in all sorts of cases and he's done it, I think, with respect to starry decide or to um, sorry, substantive due process before. So in one sense, this has gotten a lot of news, but it's not really news because anyone who thought Justice Thomas was a fan of, of substantive due process obviously hasn't been paying attention. And he so he, his decision, his uh, concurrence is mainly to say, hey, I think we should go back and just revisit the idea of substantive due process altogether. Um, but whether you whether you look at it that way or whether even even if you accept those precedents, uh, it's clear that that Roe and Casey need to be overturned. And I think a lot of people are concerned about that because there are cases that many people uh, like or don't want to see overturned. And some of which Justice Kavanaugh, you know, pointed out as well in his dissent, she said, uh, or in his concurrence, um, that like like the Griswolds, the Obergefells of the world. Um, but I think it's important to note that A, Justice Thomas isn't is a single vote here saying let's reconsider them and B as he clarifies in his opinion, um, he's not actually even saying I, those rights aren't in the Constitution. It's simply that stare decisis is an invalid way to get there. And this is something that he um, has uh, embraced in many other areas of the law. It's got, it reminds me a little bit of his uh, Mc, uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago concurrence in that case, where he says, okay, I don't think the Second Amendment is incorporated uh, through the 14th Amendment. I can't buy into that, but I actually think the Privileges and Immunities Clause can get you there. And Privileges and Immunities is sort of Justice Tom, one of Justice Thomas's favorite clauses that no one else likes to, to, uh, to cite, but he, I think it's important to remember that because he doesn't think substantive due process gets you something, doesn't actually mean that he thinks it's not there some in some other provision of the Constitution that maybe might be a, a different um, route than other justices would take. Um, and then quickly to to turn to the dissent, um, it's it's interesting because the dissent 
was written not by or was signed not by a single justice, but by all three of the liberal justices, Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor, um, which is unusual, but not obviously unprecedented a technique. I think it just it was probably their way of of adding emphasis and a, a sense of unity over over this dissent. You know, it starts out um, by by arguing that uh, Roe and Casey actually are do flow from precedent. Um, it, I, I, I do think it's interesting because they they say they're going into the details of how it flows from precedent. I don't know that they actually do clarify very in, in, in a great deal of detail um, what that is. They say it comes from a long line of precedents flowing from the 14th Amendment. They're the strong, the biggest part of their argument is saying, hey, all of those precedents that Roe flows from and, and that Casey flowed from were also precedents that led to um, Obergefell, Griswold, et cetera. And so they're continuing to make this argument that like, if you if you're willing to reconsider this, then for those same reasons, the court's going to potentially overturn those because they have similar problems with I mean, maybe from their perspective, they would not say problems. I think from the perspective of the majority, you would say those have similar problems with not having the historical precedent. uh, that that the, the majority is asking for. Uh, the, the dissent then goes on to say, actually, the historical situation in 1868, which is what um, one of the potential bases the Supreme the majority bases on, they they don't make a decision whether the original understanding of at the time of the framing is most crucial or at the time of the 14th Amendment, they say you'd fail under either one of these. Um, but the the dissent particularly says, hey, look. It doesn't even matter what, the, what what people thought at the time these were ratified, uh, because we think that the Constitution should be able to evolve uh, through through history and that you can have. I think their quote is there's the application um, can evolve of, of these rights can evolve. Well, as they say, remaining grounded in constitutional principle, constitutional history and constitutional precedent. So it, this is one of you don't uh, I think the the idea of evolution of the Constitution is one that. In my, normally, I, I hear more often in sort of rhetorical context and debating it, but it's interesting to see that that evolution term is is being used now by the by the minority and not just something that's used often pejoratively. I think by people arguing against um, a, a a idea of a living constitution. Um, so they they're embracing this idea of constitutional evolution. Um, they make an interesting argument in there that one of the reasons we shouldn't care what they thought in 1868 is because only men ratified those uh, those amendments to the Constitution. Uh, I find that a little problematic because that casts the entire Constitution up until the 19th Amendment into, you know, in, into real doubt. Um, I also think it's it's a little ahistorical because most of the suffragettes who helped uh, pass the women's right to vote were themselves pro-life. So this, the supposition that men passing it suggests that, you know, women would have done otherwise. Women might have might have included or, or imagined that the, the 14th Amendment included a right to abortion, I think is very just a, an, anachronistic um, to, pr- to suppose that, because that not, isn't historically uh, what the women of the time actually uh, did favor. Um, they they uh, take issue with Justice Kavanaugh's idea of neutrality. They say that it's not neutral for the court to just take itself out of this issue. A neutral position would be one that defended uh, these rights, uh, the right to abortion against all comers, that, I, that doesn't really track with my understanding of neutrality, but that's that is their understanding of it. And then finally, uh, they talk about stare decisis. They argue that that Roe and Casey were correct, and that there would be a huge uh, cascade of of problems that would fall for, uh, that would come from overturning 
uh, those decisions. So, uh, you know, that's again, unfortunately, there's no way to shortly summarize some of some no, of the, a very right. long opinion, but there's my effort at it. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Let's uh, thank you both of you. Let's let's turn now to the impact uh, of, of Dobbs. What what what's what's the law of abortion look like now? Um, well, we know one thing, right, which is that um, uh, uh, laws uh, prohibiting or regulating abortion are subject to the rational basis test. Um, we know uh, from Justice Alito's opinion that um, there are, I think, four or five um, goals that he singles out as legitimate and therefore providing a possible rational basis um, um, of which uh, uh, protecting fetal life seems to be the most, uh, the broadest and most obviously applicable. Um, but I think we can expect to see a lot of um, additional issues arising. I think, uh, I, I think uh, the federal courts are likely to be faced with more abortion related cases rather than fewer. Um, as a result of this decision. Uh, so would you explain that a little bit, Dan? What, how so? Um, so uh, because uh, uh, because the law had sort of, uh, the court had sort of imposed a uniform national uh, standard uh, for abortion, or at least a floor uh, for abortion protection, uh, there were a lot of issues that really didn't have to be confronted. One of them that uh, Kavanaugh specifically mentions is the issue of interstate relations to what happens when abortion is legal in one state and not in another. Can states prohibit women from traveling out of state to get abortions? Uh, that used to be true in Ireland, for example, not within the U.S., obviously, uh, where uh, uh, the uh, uh, government made a, an effort to prevent women from traveling to England uh, to get abortions. Uh, what about advertising abortion services in a state where it, abortions are prohibited? What about um, act, uh, assisting someone to travel out of state to get an abortion? Um, uh, what about assisting with the abortion itself under something uh, like, the, you know, under, say, a civil liability law um, that allows lawsuits. So there are all these interstate issues that I think will have to be uh, probably worked out. And I imagine also other issues like uh, um, uh, uh, what, ha you know, what happens. Um, so, um, uh, you know, to what extent can uh, states prevent um, interstate trans transport of um, abortion pills, for example? Can they ban importation into the state? Uh, so that's sort of a commerce clause issue, maybe, maybe a preemption issue, although I, I don't know enough about that to, to be sure. If they're going to keep Griswold and um, get rid of Roe, there are also going to be issues about where the line is between what's covered by the abortion rule and what's covered by the contraception rule. Um, and uh, so, you know, we've seen some things like, is the morning after pill a form of abortion or is it a form of contraception? 
Some people have raised that question about IUDs. That's going to be an issue. What about um, IVF um, as a form of uh, um, dealing with infertility? Um, and then we're going to see, quite, I think we're going to see some issues uh, about vagueness uh, also arising. Um, uh, I've seen reports of OBGYN doctors who don't do abortions, but are concerned that about the difficulty of determining when during a pregnancy uh, where there is a threat to the woman's life, it satisfies the applicable state standards. Uh, how long do you have to wait for an ectopic, in an ectopic pregnancy before uh, the risk uh, uh, of death is sufficiently high uh, to justify terminating the pregnancy? Uh, so I think there are going to be a whole bunch of problems along those lines, maybe vagueness attacks on some of these statutes. Uh, um, and um, I think the Supreme Court will inevitably find itself confronting some of those. Okay. Carrie, what's your view about what the law of abortion looks like now? Um, well, yeah, I agree. There's definitely a lot of questions to be added. And to, and to the ones that, that Dan mentioned, I'll, I'll add this kind of these, this nullification movement effectively that's going to be going on. I don't know if that's something that will come to the Supreme Court, but within states, the idea of you have state officials who are saying, I'm not actually not going to follow or, or enforce our state law. And there might be uh, questions arising of sort of a hierarchy of enforcement. If, if, if you have a district attorney refusing to enforce the law, is the attorney general able to do so or, or something like that? Um, there's also uh, issues of some, with some of the proposals the federal government has made. You know, I think a lot of those run into varying degrees of question of, you know, what is the constitutionality of some of the, whether it's, you know, setting up abortion camps within Yosemite National Park or something, or, or, you know, anything where the government is paying for this runs into Hyde Amendment questions, but, you know, what would, is it, who has standing to even challenge those kinds of things? I think there's that, that's going to be a large range of things. I, I have to say, I'm not sure it's going to be more questions than what the court the court was going to have to deal with abortion either way. And, and even just at the time this court was, this decision was taken up, I think there were like at least four or five different states laws that were on petition to, for cert and were held over this. And it's a range of, you know, everything from laws that were from heartbeat and, you know, all the way up to, to the initiation of fetal pain to viability in terms of timing things. There were laws that were preventing discrimination, either on the basis of race or sex or disability status, uh, the way that, that fetal remains were taken care of and addressed. Uh, obviously, there's the, there's the classic sort of um, conscience protections that, are, that, that keep on coming up or parental notification things. We saw recently um, medical standards that had come up in the Hellerstedt case and the June medical case. So I, I just think they were going to have to deal with abortion related questions either way. It, it, the feature, I guess, of the, of the issues they're dealing with now is instead of trying to interpret a right that I, I would argue as doesn't really have a constitutional foundation. Now you're you're interpreting issues that that actually have a, a real legal basis. You can you can drill back into and, and get your teeth into uh, whether it's you know the 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 uh, all, you know just regular legal issues like again who can who has standing to bring these types of claims who can intervene in a case to defend a state law like the case, the court actually decided this term in some aspect when when state actors aren't defending their own law. So these are issues that that are necessarily going to come up. But I think the biggest um, bulk of the action 
is going to then devolve upon state courts. It's going to be interesting to watch how that happens. We're already seeing that. And as Dan alluded to, there have been vagueness challenges in some of them. I, I don't think the law is any vaguer than any other law where you have to balance, you know, what is your how, how concerned are you for your safety in, in exerting self-defense, for example? In the thing, I mean, all of those, the courts have to deal with sort of these, these balancing of when life is really at stake and when it isn't. Um, so, but I, but I think you're going to see state courts having to do that. And I think it's going to be interesting can, can, to watch. Can I ask you to, can I ask you to mm-hmm. drill down that a little bit? Because that's a question that several of our audience members have, have, have asked. I, I, I eventually want to get to give both you and, and, and Dan a, a chance to critique uh, Dobbs, but you raised the state uh, uh, court action. A number of people have asked that. W- where do we see this playing out? Are we are we going to see that uh, state courts are going to interpret their con- their state constitutions uh, to protect uh, a, a right to abortion, or where do you see that headed? Well, you know, we, we've already seen that in some cases, like yeah. Kansas uh, recently interpreted its state constitution to encompass a right to abortion. And they actually have a, a constitutional amendment that's now going to be on the ballot to, to uh, change that. Iowa had interpreted state, its constitution that way and then actually has switched and said, actually, it's not in there. Uh, you know, there's Florida just just stayed uh, their 15 or their, a, a Florida judge uh, just stayed their 15 week um, ban because uh, there's language in the, in the Florida constitution that talks about natural persons have a right to privacy. Now, the language in the, in the Florida Constitution doesn't it doesn't sound like a Griswoldy right to privacy. It sounds more like a right to not be interfered with more broadly. And they also have a right to natural persons have a right to life is also in that Constitution. So I think there's going to be a real question. What is a natural person? You know, how do these things interact with each other? And that's going to be something the Florida Supreme Court undoubtedly is going to have to grapple with. Um, but I don't see how that would th- those would would stay, generally speaking, at the state level. Right, I right. think it's also going to shine a real spotlight on the state, uh, on state courts more broadly. I think this is something that a lot of people, you know, we have everyone's paying attention to the U.S. Supreme Court, but I think very few people are paying as close attention as they probably should to the makeup of their state Supreme Court. Different states have different selection methods, which often tend to push their courts in in, in different directions. Um, and I think it's going to be people are going to be much more aware and conscious of do I have a state, a court that is one that is an originalist court, or is it, do I have a state court that is much more apt to believe in this sort of evolution of constitutional principles? And I think that's uh, that's something that's going to be a real battleground going forward as well. Which which will help sales of Judge Sutton's books, <laughs> which should which 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 we should. Well, let, 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 me ask, let me ask both of you. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I had a couple of, of other things to add in terms of later litigation that I, okay. I, I think one that we're seeing now um, that's going to be especially interesting for this court um, are uh, free exercise claims. Uh, we've already seen um, uh, claims that at least some under some uh, interpretation of uh, of um, sort of the uh, uh, principles of Judaism, uh, there are claims that abortion may be required in broader circumstances uh, than uh, these laws um, uh, require that, that these laws allow. And that's going to be, I think, interesting because the court is also fiercely protective of free exercise claims and may uh, have to uh, confront a possible collision there. Um, I think we also, as uh, we've seen in the past with expansions of um, sort of um, uh, government control. Um, 
uh, we're likely to see enforcement related issues, right? Uh, uh, not necessarily legally novel issues, but we'll be seeing Fourth Amendment issues, for example, um, um, I imagine as state governments make an effort to track what pregnant women are up to um, and what doctors are up to um, uh, uh, and um, uh, tr try to police uh, against the possibility of abortions taking place. Um, I think if you're serious about enforcement, um, it's pretty hard to, um, uh, to do that without uh, some fairly intrusive surveillance, at least on occasion. Um, I think, um, um, so, um, I mean, we've, we, you know, we see that with just, you know, anytime the law uh, tries to prevent conduct that people really badly want to engage in, right? Um, it's, uh, you, can, you can easily close down abortion clinics, but for example, stopping women from covertly buying abortion pills is gonna be a lot more difficult. Um, and so, so I think, um, and you know, scrutinizing medical records to make sure that treatment for miscarriage isn't being used as a cover for abortions in cases where the pregnancy could have been saved. Uh, so I think we're going to, you know, I think, I think we're going to not necessarily see novel issues because these are the kinds of issues that arise in lots of other, you know, drug cases in, um, you know, other kinds of cases, but we'll be seeing more of those in a, in a sort of different factual setting. Just, you know, just to, just to take issue with a little bit of that, there, there may be some interesting, you know, fourth amendment issues that come up, but I just find it incredibly unlikely that any state would would consider uh, actually criminalizing the woman's behavior. The last time a, a woman was prosecuted uh, in America for trying to procure an abortion was in 1924. And this is like 50 years before Roe, when the only state that has contemplated doing that was Louisiana and immediately got shut down by a host of pro-life groups that said, this is not a good strategy. Please do not do not try to criminalize uh, women who are seeking abortions. And so I, I predict that we're going to see exclusive enforcement directed at the abortionists themselves, um, the the industry, um, you know, potentially, you know, we're now seeing an increased number of like businesses that are that are trying to fund uh, women's abortions. You might even see it on that front. But I, I just think it'd be incredibly unlikely to see actual enforcement attempts at women. I think sometimes we're hearing things that strike me as just really hyperbolic fear mongering, like saying, oh, what if what if someone some state tries to get into my, you know, my period tracker app and figure out if I was pregnant and then suddenly wasn't pregnant and then suspect that it wasn't a miscarriage and try to. I mean, I, I just think that is um, really out there. I, it, it's it's trying to it's trying to drum up fear. And I don't think it's at all based in reality of what what is likely to happen. And again, in 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 none of these states are they attempting to criminalize uh, the women's behavior. It's really trying to uh, it, it, it go against uh, the doctors and, and the, the big industry behind the, the abortions, not the women themselves. You know, I, I don't disagree with that as a sort of political matter, although it seems to me to be uh, illogical. Um, to um, exempt the person who's the prime mover uh, in committing and uh, causing the behavior to happen. 
Uh, but in any event, even if the women are not prosecuted, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't want to, you know, that um, in building a case, say, against a doctor, uh, that you might not want to uh, uh, obtain information about uh, patients um, to uh, determine what was going on, right? You, the, it's not only criminals who are subject to uh, searches based on probable cause. Um, so, I have an interesting question. Back to back to the back to the opinion. Um, uh, someone asked why uh, uh, why the court gave uh, no purchase to the John Finnis Robert George argument that the uh, originalist argument that prenatal life uh, is protected under the Fourteenth Amendment. Any any thoughts as to uh, why the court didn't seem interested in that? I think one good reason they didn't is there was no need to go there. Um, the only person who really discussed it was Justice Kavanaugh, who kind of gave a little advice. He gave a few advisory opinions throughout his concurrence, which are kind of funny. He gave us his, his thoughts, you know, on on fetal personhood, on the right to travel. You know, so I, I didn't think any of that was really necessary. And it wasn't uh, it was it was briefed a little bit in the amicus brief, but it wasn't something that parties engaged on in any serious way. So I, 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 that doesn't surprise me particularly um, that they that they didn't engage on that either. You know, I would say, um, um, I, you know, I think that I think all of that's right. But I, I think the court, it really would have, um, in a sense, undone all of the reasoning that is in the opinion, which is about how this is an issue that should be left to elected representatives. Uh, that this is a deep clash of values, and that's the sort of thing the court should not be deciding. Um, and so, I so it seems to me that um, the implication of the opinion is clearly to reject uh, that kind of intervention. Um, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, what, what your your chance to critique uh, the opinion? Well, let's take let's take on the majority opinion. What what what's uh, how do you grade it and uh, how does it stack up? You know who goes first here? Yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I think I don't, I don't have a lot to uh, nitpick about it. I'm very, I was very relieved to see that the opinion so closely tracked with the draft, the leaked draft. I think that was really important just for um, integrity of the court reasons because. Um, well, under normal circumstances, you might have various justices saying, actually, can you change this thing? And even sometimes, which would be more stylistic things and sometimes which could have some substantive implications. But I think it was it, it's helpful to see that this that the leaked draft did not substantively change the outcome of the decision. Uh, you know, re the really the only changes had to do with responses to the concurrences and the dissent, and then an additional reinforcement saying, hey, no, I know you're, everyone's really worried about Griswold and Bergefell. This decision's doing nothing with those. So um, even though it was already in the original draft, they just you know emphasized it further. So I, I thought it was an outstanding example of very of clarity, of just working through it in a, in a very workmanlike manner. And I was pleased that while, while it is often fun to read those more rhetorical flourishes and opinions, I think it was very appropriate in this case for Justice Alito to keep it, you know, sort of just the facts, ma'am, um, in, in his opinion, because I think this issue is already so fraught um, that having additional, you know, things like that in the opinion would have uh, unnecessarily just raised the temperature even further. Uh, there's there's enough hyperbole around this topic already and, and enough rhetorical flourish to, to just say this opinion speaks for itself. 
Dan? Um, yeah, I think it was a, a sort of workman, a very workmanlike uh, opinion. I think all the major arguments had been really developed in previous uh, dissenting opinions over the years. You know, this isn't the first time uh, that uh, the argument for overruling Roe has been made. Um, I, I, I thought there were places where uh, maybe like Kavanaugh, Alito went out of his way to opine about things that weren't before the court, like third party standing and abortion picketing and, you know, other related issues, uh, which I think he would have been uh, better to um, leave out. Um, I thought the tone of the opinion was fine, although... Uh, it seems it seemed to me that uh, he didn't go out of his way to express any respect for his predecessors on the bench uh, 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 um, uh, who, uh, you know, sort of come across as, um, uh, you know, at best sort of um, um, not very competent uh, in, in um, applying um, the law. Um, I, I think that his tone is um, maybe a little more dismissive than I would have liked to see. Um, I, you know, my own views are, are um, um, uh, more those of the dissent than the majority opinion, but I don't see any point in trying to relitigate that at this point. That that issue is. But that, no, that's that, that's fine. To, to give us your, your <laughs> critique of of the majority. I think we'd be interested in hearing that. Uh, so I think that I think the basic question is um, whether we should consider abortion as a standalone right or as part or whether we should consider the right uh, at issue to be control of uh, whether or not um, uh, uh, you want to have children. Um, I think if you view it as at the, the right as being one of reproductive freedom. I mean, by that, I don't mean, I mean, in both directions. Um, I think it's easier to make the argument that that uh, ought to qualify as a fundamental right. And then that gets you, if it is a fundamental right, to the question about what to do about the countervailing state interest. And once you frame it that way, I think it probably lends itself to some, some kind of intermediate position, maybe Casey like maybe Roberts, who knows what. Um, uh, so that's that's uh, sort of the direction I would uh, take. I would want to do it. Um, I do think um, that, uh, I also think that, um, uh, that the story decisis is a more serious issue here uh, than um, maybe um, Alito gives it credit for. Um, it, this is a really drastic, a, a drastic change in the law uh, that uh, not only uh, that uh, not only overturns precedents, but precedent, you know, over, but over does it in circumstances where it's absolutely clear that the only thing that has changed is that um, we have a. a you know, a few new, a couple of new justices. Um, and um, I don't think that's good for the court. I'm not saying, obviously, that story, to, you know, that's not, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong to overrule, but I think Alito should have maybe been more concerned about that than he was. 
Um, and finally, uh, uh, the um, sort of history and tradition rule. Um, I think he does find that in Glucksburg, but I, um, and he seems to, uh, that approach seems to be sort of popular with the court now. We see it also in the gun case and elsewhere. But I do think the court hasn't really thought through how much other cases might have to be rethought um, uh, if you were to t apply that rule across the board. Um, it, it seems to me, for example, um, that's uh, some of what the court has said about race discrimination might or might not stand up if the standard is what were state legislatures doing in the 1860s and the decades soon thereafter that would establish a specific tradition. Um, so anyway, I think I, I, I would, um, I, I would uh, have gone the other way. Um, Nevertheless, I, as I say, I think we've crossed that bridge. Um, I don't see the, the court going back anytime in the next couple of decades anyway. Um, and I think the more important question is where do we go from here? Carrie, your response, your defense? Um, yeah, well, I, I first of all, the argument that merely change in court uh, personnel, you know, it, it somehow undermines the legitimacy of overturning a decision. I think there's a lot of decisions where that has been. I mean, you think of most of the New Deal era kind of shift in the court. That was a lot of it was driven by change in personnel. And, and there hasn't been nearly the same amount of hand wringing of, oh, this is so this is so illegitimate because the change in personnel. I think it's understandable when people you know, are looking at the Constitution from a different perspective. I, you know, the court gives the example of the the um, the Jehovah's Witness uh, in, in flag uh, salute case cases where three years intervene. You know, this, you don't necessarily have to have a huge time intervening uh, to and, and changes on top of which I think the majority does a good job of explaining how things have changed in those intervening years, how things that Casey suggested might be relevant, like the, the idea that this could put to rest a national debate clearly didn't do so um, and didn't play out the way that they predicted it would. I don't think that's a good basis for upturning, over upholding or overturning a case either way. But if you did, if you were the Casey court and did, then it, it didn't play out the way they said. What things they predicted don't didn't come to pass. Uh, so I think I think that doesn't change the legitimacy of it. I suspect, um, obviously, I, I I hope we don't have the opportunity to figure this out. But I suspect if the membership of the court changed overnight, uh, you probably would see the members of the, of the dissent perfectly willing to overturn Dobbs, despite the fact that the change in in court membership was the the key factor. Um, you, you mean even even just looking at the dissent in the Bruin case that many of these same dissenters were were on um, really calls into question the legitimacy of, of Heller itself. And so you have the same people who are arguing, you know, that somehow stare decisis is is a much more, I, I would say, it's not it's not really as firm a rule as anyone tries to pretend it is when they're on the on the receiving end of, of, of something being overturned. Uh, I, I think they they would be from from the discussions in their dissents. They sound like they'd be very happy and, and think it was the right thing to do to overturn something like Heller, despite the fact that there has not been intervening uh, real changes. And certainly the, the constitutional analysis uh, would be the same. Um, you know, finally, I think one one uh, strong point in this case, uh, maybe compared with a couple other cases that just were decided in the last week is. I like how the court was very clear with what it was doing. I'm glad they said just straight up, 
we are overturning Roe and Casey and didn't kind of leave it in the in the in the mist. Even the the uh, the, the Kennedy coach Kennedy case that seems to have overturned Lemon, but didn't say it overturned the Lemon test or the Carson versus Macon test that seems to say it overturns all Blaine amendments. Now, that wasn't a Blaine amendment, but that kind of text. And yet didn't say it did that. You know, we've seen so many times when the court walks up to something and effectively does it. And a lot of courts say, well, they just overturned this. And other courts say, maybe they didn't. Maybe there's a loophole here. So I think I think one thing that hopefully will at least cabin some of the potential, you know, fallout in the other courts is that they were clear about what they were doing. And um, and that was that's, you know, one other uh, benefit to this opinion. And then just finally, I'm, I'm trying to remember some of, of Dan's points. I think you know, you're right. The the idea that there's a um, a right to reproduction, it, you'd have a much better better argument making the case that that is somewhere found, if not in substantive due process under Glucksburg, but uh, in um, it, even the Privileges and Immunities Clause if you're Justice Thomas. Um, I think the challenge here is th- this is not about really a right to to reproduce. The challenge is the the women women who are seeking abortion already have a a a a child, a fetus, what do you, what do you want to call it, um, in utero at the time. So this is not, that might be a better argument for the Griswold line of cases, I would say, because your question of do I or do I not uh, reproduce, I think I would say falls at that point. After that point, um, obviously there's a, there are different states and different people take different positions on that. But I, I, I would say there's a very strong argument to say, look, there's already a human being there. So it's a different question. It's not, do I reproduce? It's what do I do with this person who is there, but is not yet born? And I think that, that, that makes it not really the parallel of, of, you know, do I, do I, or do I not reproduce um, in that question? But either way, the court didn't, has not yet at least embraced that analysis of, um, of those rights at issue. So, um, but I think that would be one of the responses to that. Yes. I mean, I think that, that, uh, I think that question of what's the best way to frame it um, d- is um, always difficult to analyze and um, and somewhat fraught. So, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think that would be a longer conversation and one I would have to do a lot more thinking about. Um, I, um, I think, um, I think I agree with you, um, not only for the benefit of lower court judges, but that for society, it may have been better for the court to overrule directly. Um, In some of our earlier sessions before the uh, um, opinion, I talked about that because uh, it seems to me in terms of the political process, whatever it's going to do, and there's all kinds of speculation about that, but who knows, but that at least if there is a clear cut, you know, sort of, um, uh, upfront position about uh, what the law is, at least people have a basis for deciding what they think about it. Um, and something like the Roberts approach, I think, would ultimately have led to much the same result, uh, but in a way that would have been less visible to the public and um, less subject to the democratic process. So, um, so I think I agree with you about that. Um, we're, we're coming up against a, a hard stop at five o'clock, and I, I want to ask what a combined several questions that we've, that we've had from the audience and, and pose it to you and see if we can get it in. S- several people have asked about the, the impact of the Dobbs uh, decision beyond abortion law, is, uh, about the methodology that the majority opinion uses 
what 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 does that tell us about future uh, uh, challenges brought under substantive due process or under un, under unenumerated rights? Uh, what 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 is what is what does litigation look like after Dobbs if someone wants to bring a claim of a uh, unenumerated right? No, I, I would say if you're arguing an unenumerated right, just to cover all your bases. Uh, there are some justices who clearly are on board with substantive due process, but I'd throw in a privileges and immunities uh, alternate argument just to make sure you get everyone everyone on board there. Okay. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I actually, uh, though I don't often find myself agreeing with Justice Thomas, I actually do think privileges um, uh, and immunities is the better uh, vehicle, both for incorporation of the Bill of Rights and for this. Um, I guess um, we haven't really addressed it, I think, directly, but I, I, I don't think that Dobbs actually is going to affect Griswold or Obergefell or the other cases. Um, I, I think those precedents will stand. Is that, is that as a matter of prudential uh, judging or matter of principle? Do, do you think that Justice Alito succeeded in making a principle distinction between those cases? I think the stare decisis argument is different um, um, in those cases. Uh, for example, with Obergefell, people are married. I mean, they have own community property. You know, that's, uh, you know, undoing that um, is quite different than um, uh, banning abortions going forward. Um, I think... Um, uh, I think also as a matter of prudence and, and also... Um, Although those are controversial decisions in some respects, they have not given rise to the, as it turns out, although they might have, to the kind of uh, reaction and divisiveness that Roe involved. It's hard to know about future, um, you know, other kinds of due process of uh, fundamental rights claims without knowing what they are. Yeah. And I, I do kind of wonder, you know, if we get claims that involve really new technologies, for example, you know, the right not to be subject to gene editing against your will, um, you know, uh, or something like that. I, I really have no idea how this particular test would apply. Uh, you know, if you're dealing with something that just doesn't have a clear historical parallel, um, I, I'm not sure that the Alito analysis will help you, but I don't know. I think we have to wait to see specific claims. Yeah, I think I think another reason to expect those aren't going to be overturned anytime soon is the court can't just reach out and overturn them. You need someone like in the case of Griswell, you need a state to say, hey, we're going to outlaw contraception. I just again, as, as Dan was suggesting, there have been people trying to work toward um, undoing Roe for a long time and, and and bringing cases specifically designed to challenge that. I just don't see any any broad public movement of, hey, you know, here's a state where what, what we're itching to do is limit contraception so we can bring a test case on that. I just, you know, I, I, I don't see that in the cards. And so I, I think it'd be hard to imagine the court having an occasion, even if we're interested in doing so, to overturn some of those cases. So in the, in the last minute, let me throw up a, la a last question for you all. So for, for those in the pro-life movement, this has been the culmination of a, of a long battle. And and, and the argument has been this is this is something that should be left to the democratic process. Well, it's now going to be turned over to the democratic process. Is the democratic process in good enough shape to have the type of debate that uh, 
that we need to have without uh, without it being too terribly divisive? What What do you think? It's going to be divisive. I mean, that that goes without saying. I mean, in this case, it was going to be controversial, whichever way it came out. It was it, this is a divisive issue. The democratic process is designed to resolve divisive issues. If they weren't division, you wouldn't you ever. We wouldn't need a democratic process in the first place. Um, so I don't think this. Uh, you know, this is really not the. It is the culmination of a goal of the pro-life movement, but it certainly doesn't end the question in in any way, because there's now 50 different sort of theaters of uh, of battle here instead of just one. I think this really just opened the door for the possibility to make those arguments. And now it's up to the pro-life movement. If if they want to have laws that reflect their values, they, they're going to need to convince uh, a majority of their fellow citizens that that's the kind of laws they want, and, and I think simultaneously also ensure that they have judges who are going to then abide by those laws as they're passed. Okay. But that's not an easy job. No, not easy job. No, crazy. Um, yeah, I I think um, I think it's already intensely divisive. I agree about that. Um, I this may force more people to think about their views and not just assume the issue's been handled by the courts. Um, but I think I, I think that's healthy rather than harmful to democracy. Um, and I think people who are pro-choice um, are gonna have to find out whether um, in fact, um, this is something that the majority of women feel is an important part of their autonomy and equality or not. Um, and um, so we'll see. But, uh, but well, my, my, my hope yeah. is that, that the debate that we engage in going forward on this will be as civil and respectful as the discussion uh, that you two have modeled for us. So thank I hope you so. very much. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I only wish you would have as good a moderator. Thank you. Well, that, just, I, think, I think we're up against a hard shot. Yes, I just wanted to thank our experts uh, for the benefit of our valuable time and expertise today. And I also want to thank the audience for joining and participating. Our next Courthouse Steps Decision Webinar will take place tomorrow, July 1st at noon Eastern on Denespe and Isleta. Uh, for a complete list of upcoming webinars, please visit fedsoc.org slash teleforum. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Mm -hmm.